Last year, I found a new rabbit hole down the internet to go. Don't shake your head at me, bro. You've probably done the same thing. Uh, it wasn't YouTube. It wasn't a social media network. It, it was a different type of network. It was a website called, um, well, you guys have all been on it, Zillow. Have you been on Zillow before? Yeah, of course you have. When you like, you know, something breaks in your house, one guy I talked to you, he was like, yeah, our furnace went out, so I'm buying a new house. It's like, oh, that's how you do. Okay. And um, I, I love my house. I don't have any problems with my house. It's a great house for us. The Lord's provided a great place for us. But every once in a while, I just love looking at residential architecture. Like, there are some incredible homes in northwest Indiana that you didn't even know existed, particularly like around this area. Sometimes I creep on our neighbors and see what they're doing and whatnot, and I use Zillow to do it. Don't judge me. You've done the same thing, too. There's a thing that I realized about Zillow that um, really, we all do it. Uh, the, the number one search trends on Zillow are um, as follows. Open floor plan, granite, counter, or, uh, granite and stainless steel uh, appliances and countertops. And do you know what the number one is? Natural light. Natural light. Some of you have built homes. Some of you have looked for homes. Uh, and and uh, some of you have sold homes. And you've had photographers come into your space. And they take professional pictures of your house. Uh, real estate agents tell me that a well-photographed home can add 6 to 8% value to your sale. On like a, you know, a regular $200,000 home, that's a decent chunk of change. It's like $16,000. For just having someone come in and shoot pictures in the right way. And here's what a photographer does. A, regular, a really good photographer looks at the light in the space and captures it in such a way that it makes the whole entire room sing. If you do landscaping or if you do any type of outdoor project, you got to capture the light when the light is most interesting, when the light is at its, at its best. Oftentimes, it's like the golden hour. There's something about light that we love. House buyers are... Um, really making it clear uh, that when they look at a picture on Zillow, one of the things that they'd say is, um, we want less mirrors, more windows. Less mirrors, more windows. We'll get to these in a little bit today, I promise. Less mirrors, but more windows. And um, I think that's huge because a mirror is a trick, and we all know it. If you have a poorly lit room, you put a mirror on the opposite side of a window, it draws more light in, and it shows everybody, oh, the room looks a little bigger, but you know it's just a trick. A well-placed window in a perfect part of the house makes the whole thing sing, makes you happy. It makes you want to live. Do I have a picture, Tim? I don't know if I have a picture. I, I wanted to have a picture. I found my dream house, you guys. This is my dream house. Don't you think, like, look at those windows, right? I mean, don't you think you, you, you the, the thought you have right now, you're nudging your wife, you're saying, why do we live in snowy Indiana? And you're saying, wouldn't you like to wake up to that every morning? So, true talk, when, when I was growing up and my mom would be confronted with a bit of envy or jealousy in her heart because uh, a home had such nice windows, she would play it off. She would look at us and say, well, who's going to clean all those windows? <laughs> like she didn't want them. I always said, who cares, ma? Look at the view. I want to talk this morning with you. I mean, you got out of bed and plowed your driveway and came to church, and I want to honor you by reading the word. I want to talk about the topic of light in your house today. I don't really care about the architecture of your home. I mean, you could, you could live happily in a, in a cardboard box if you wanted to, but um, really what I want to use is the metaphor of windows and mirrors, of, of natural light to, um, what would be the word? Illuminate? See what I did there? 
I want to use that to illuminate for us some principles from the scripture. For what it's like when some aspects of our homes are not filled with the light of the gospel. That's what I want to just briefly talk about today. We've gone through all of Family Month, given some sort of ideal and some sort of, some sort of um, picture out there for what it looks like when everything's running healthily. But I want to bring this down to earth today and say, what do you do when there's not a lot of gospel light in your home and maybe you're the only one? What do you do when you might be the only one who actually is convinced of the gospel? Does the Bible have anything to say for us? And whether you're married or single or, or, or you know, not, if you're a parent, this is an especially true message that you can apply to the relationship you have with your, with your kids. Because I don't know if your kids are different than my kids, but my kids came out of the womb pretty sinful. And when I have been raising my kids, I've had to live my life in the light of the gospel such that my unbelieving kids might one day trust in the Savior, Jesus Christ, as well. And I think this is the heartbeat of what we want to get to today is for those who are here asking the question, but I'm the only one in my family. Or I didn't come from a church family. I don't know if I'm raising my kids the right way or being a good husband to my wife or being a good wife to my husband. What do I do? I want you to open to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3 is where I want to house us this morning. I know we've been in, kind of in Romans for, for most of this uh, series, but I want us to turn to 1 Peter 3 today. 1 Peter was written to a group of Christians who lived in the world uh, that had little concern for the things of God, and they had to learn how to function holding fast to their faith. I think some of us grew up in homes that were affirming of the gospel. That's all we've ever known as kids. I know that's my story. I'm grateful for the legacy that my parents gave me. But for, for you, this message today might be for those moments when you're reminded that you're tempted to forsake the gospel truth in your home, what do you do? For others of us, you might be the first person to ever believe in Jesus. You might have come to faith after you were married and, and your spouse does not share the same values as you. What do you do? You love your family, but you struggle to relate because sometimes you have different foundational convictions. First Peter is going to show us how all of us can, who, who, who have the gospel light of Christ can bring that light into our homes. First Peter chapter 3 is what we're going to find here. And um, I want you to notice the burden of Peter as he addresses this next group of people in his letter, it's towards wives. But I want to show you how this actually applies also to husbands once we kind of get through it. So um, if you're with me, you got First Peter 3 in front of you. I know we're a small crowd today, but you're with me? Yeah. All right, let's do it. Let's jump in. Likewise. So I got to stop, right? Because the pastor has got to say one word and then stop every single week. That's how we preach. If you're ever wondering how to preach, you just say one word and then you stop and say, let me explain that to you. Likewise, all right. So um, a couple of months ago, we were doing online church and, and Scott and I uh, were doing this, this thing on Facebook called Help Me Study the Bible. And we went through the whole entire book of First Peter. Some of you joined in with us. It was a, a whole lot of fun. And um, you know, if you've been tracking if you tracked with us through that time, what Peter just said before this likewise in chapter three is at the end of chapter two, an incredibly important thing. He's essentially saying, if you've ever suffered for doing wrong because you were a Christian, not if you've ever suffered for being Christian, not because you were doing wrong, but simply because you love Jesus, that's what he's saying. And you stand up in the midst of that suffering and you take it, you're honoring the Lord because even Christ, who was innocent, suffered as though he was guilty. That's Peter's whole purpose that he's pushing out of chapter 2. And he, he talks about employees and employers, what he actually calls slaves and, and masters. 
Um, in our day, it would be employees and employers. And he says, listen, if you've got a boss that's really just a hard boss to work for, and, and it looks down on you because you believe in Christ and not necessarily worshiping at the altar of the, the gods here in our society, and they treat you poorly because of your faith, you should rejoice in that because even they treated Jesus poorly because of who he was. And then Peter says, likewise. <laughs> likewise, wives. This whole entire situation is one of misunderstandings and being framed for something on account of being a Christian. And so the the people that he's talking to are are very specifically those who have put their stake in the ground and said, I will follow Christ with my life. And he says, likewise, um, wives, be subject to your own husbands. I'll talk about that in a second. So that even if some do not obey the word, they may be one without a word by the conduct of their wives. If you're taking notes, you should circle that word conduct. When they see your, and then these two words, respectful and pure conduct. Do not let the adorning be external of braiding of hair, the putting on of gold jewelry, or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. I just want to stop there and pray with us. Would you, would you pray with me? Father, um, this is a passage that we've come to you time and time again in our society and we've um, thought very shallowly about and help us to think deeply, Father. Um, on this day where, where you've provided for us so many things, would you let your word speak to us in power, um, give um, applications to our hearts today as we seek to honor you. And help my words be your truth, full of your spirit. To you, let me pray. Amen. Okay, so I've already told you the, the first Peter that the first people that Peter is talking to here are the first generation Christians whom uh, the government had systematically persecuted by relocating them in various regions across many parts of the Roman Empire. Sometimes Christians today ask me if I'm afraid of the, the future for America, and I tell them, no, I could care less what happens in America. And they look at me like I'm a bad patriot or I'm like a really foolish person, and the reason is because um, it hasn't gotten so bad that people are getting relocated because of their faith, like it did in the first century when the first Christians had to actually cost something to follow Jesus. If they could make it, I think we could make it. That's my point. These were people who um, were exiled, right? And so here's how Rome used to conquer people. They would walk in, they would declare the peace of Rome is here, but what this means is we're going to actually mix you all up. And so if you look at verse 1 of 1 Peter 1, it says, to the elect exiles in Bithynia, Galatia, Pontus, uh, Cappadocia, and Asia Minor. These are regions all around the Mediterranean that, that are not Jerusalem. Peter was writing to a Christian converts out of Judaism who then were mixed up by the Roman Empire. They were sent to different parts of the country. It'd be like, you know, someone from downtown Chicago coming out here to Portage and someone from Portage going to the middle of Manhattan, right? I mean, there's just, you kind of feel like a fish out of water. At some point, you would lose all of your safety network, your social network, everything would be different for you. And this is the way that Rome kind of controlled the world. In this day, not only were the Christians disenfranchised and suffering, they were having to figure out who they actually are in light of the gospel. Who, what does the gospel make me as a person? Not only that, but, but when we look back at this, we, we have to understand that context, but we also have to understand that marriage in general was very different 2,000 years ago than it is today. 
Um, we, we have this impression that Norman Rockwell painted his painting of the family of, in America back in like the, the third century BC. But marriage was not the egalitarian thing that it is today. I use those words in retrospective history. Marriage that Peter wrote towards was um, more fiddler on the roof and less modern family, if that helps. Does that help? Right? Tradition and matchmakers. You're there now, and you're singing the song in your head, and you're cursing me. That's fine. Here's, here's what I mean. Jewish women had particular um, respect, but diminished power. One commentator summarized it this way. Women had no inheritance. They could not choose who to marry. They could not get a religious education or participate in the synagogue. Nor could they go where they pleased. So a different world. And then I think a Jewish rabbi named Jesus comes along and teaches the great equality of men and women. He esteems women greatly to the point where his first followers seem radically feminist in comparison to everyone around them. Take this religious conversion and, and valuing of women, add to it the cultural mixing up of the day, putting Christians in exile, and you could find yourself as a Jewish convert to Christianity who's married to still a Jewish man living now in Asia Minor where the culture is totally different where, let me tell you about Asia Minor. Women in Asia Minor were part of the Greco-Roman system. They enjoyed tremendous liberties. They could own businesses. They could have wealth. They enjoyed the blessings of mobility and society. They could even vote and hold political office. You think our world is kind of bipolar. I mean, this is just hundreds of you know, miles away from each other, such different cultures. So you have this upheaval, and it was disorienting for many. And maybe if you've ever seen an immigrant family move from their country into your neighborhood. I just was on the phone with my, my, my neighbor moved from Greece to Northwest Indiana 30 years ago and still struggles to feel like Northwest Indiana is his home to the point where he doesn't, he was calling me, he said, I don't know how to plow my driveway. That was 9.05 a.m. for me right there, right? Like my, my immigrant neighbor still doesn't feel like he knows how to handle his life here in this home. This is kind of the people that Peter's speaking to. Because Christian women were now in a new position, the question was, how do you live out the gospel with integrity in light of the new situation around you? Especially as many women came to faith in Christ while their husbands remained engaged either in Judaism or in emperor worship. What were they to do? Almost every scholar agreed that when a woman would become a, com a convert of another excuse me, another religion than her husband's, it was an act of rebellion against him. So if you're a Jewish woman who understands the truth about Jesus and you say to your husband, I believe in Jesus now, it could be seen as an act of betrayal against your wedding vows. So if Christ is your highest value, your supreme identity, more so than marriage, what do you do? Is marriage so cheap that you can now just divorce him? What do you do? And this is the surprise. The answer of Scripture is unequivocally no. You stay together. Before we kind of dissect Peter's words, I want to just turn back a little bit to Paul, who told another church in a different region in Corinth, similarly, here's what he said. Check this out. He said, to the rest I say, and in parentheses he kind of says, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife, and that brother is like Christian man, Right? Not just like a brother married his sister. That's not what the Bible's saying. 
If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, he should not divorce, she should not divorce him. Uh, it, was, it was about a year ago uh, this week that I sat down at Susie's Cafe over in Valpo with um, a young man who was a leader in Northwest Indiana, just a tremendous, he was a quarterback of his college football team, running, running a great ministry, and sat down with me and said, my marriage is over. My wife has decided that she no longer believes in God, and I've done everything I can to ask her to stay with me, but she has refused, and so we're getting a divorce. Here's a man who found out that he had an unbelieving wife, and she did not consent to live with him, and he pursued to stay together in light of these verses, but in the end, it became a really futile situation for him. This happens. This is something that we see here in our society too. And Paul answers the question, should we stay married? And, and the answer for the Christian at least is, yes, stay married. Absolutely. If, if, if you find out that your spouse, you trust in Christ and your spouse did not trust in Christ with you, stay married. But Peter adds the why to this. He says this, so that if that person doesn't obey the word, they might be one to the family of God. See, those who have Christ believe we have good news worth sharing, especially with those whom we love, right? If you're not a Christian, you're here because of a family member, I, I hope that you see them as someone who loves you and wants you to be changed for the good. Not only does Peter give us the why, it's to win your spouse, but he also gives us the how. Look at this again. He says, wives, be subject to your own husbands. That's interesting because in Jesus coming to uh, this earth and dying and setting things new, no longer did women have to just respect all men, but women had to respect their own husbands. That's why that's own in there. So that even if some do not obey the word, they might be one. What are those next three words? I know we're few, but what are those next few words? Without a word. Without a word. It's like your way of life itself should draw your unbelieving spouse into a relationship with God. Peter's admonition is this. Make it easy for him to be attracted to the beauty of the gospel that God has created inside of you. And that's why this works for husbands today too. Because husbands, what are you to do with your unbelieving family, with your unbelieving kids, with your unbelieving spouse? Are you supposed to preach them into submission and dominate your family? No. Peter says, no, instead, instead of flexing your faith externally, pull back the curtains on the internal life and let the natural light of Jesus shine into your home through you. Why? Because the gospel has inherent power as it is moving through the lives of people that it's changing. That's why. That's Peter's argument, and that's what brings me, I think, to this illustration of windows and mirrors. Um, and I'll, I want to walk through the rest of this passage just with this. This is not, Paul, or Peter doesn't use these words to talk about windows and mirrors, and I'm sorry that this is shining right in your faces. Can I do this? Nope, there's no good spot. Here, right here. Boom. Nailed it. Sorry, Colin. That's... Yep, totally got it. it, was, it was, we were like, we'll shoot him up. It'll be perfect. No one will get blinded. Sorry, Sherry. Just like, I was wondering why there was a halo around you. I thought that you were like divinely, like this message wasn't for you, but it is. That's, that's great. Um, 
windows and mirrors, windows and mirrors. Um, Peter doesn't use these words, but this is the metaphor that's sort of undergirding what he's about to say. I've always heard 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 4 tagged as a special text for young women who are growing up who are looking for a husband. But I hope that I've convinced you enough that this is a passage for women who are married, who um, even to the point where they may not have a believing spouse. Look at what, look at what I see. It says, do not let your adorning be external, the braiding of hair and the putting on of gold jewelry or the clothing you wear. But let your adorning be the hidden person of the heart with an imperishable beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit, which in God's sight is very precious. Some of the mirrors, uh, kind of, they're out there and, and this here today. I um, stole one of them from my daughter's room. She's seven. I know just by virtue of growing up in America, she's going to spend a lot of time looking at a mirror in her life. Um, and I hope she takes these words of Peter to heart, that she might be reminded that what's inside is more important than what's outside. But Peter, I want to remind you, was talking not to just innocent single women, but to married women. Why is it important to remember that Peter is talking to wives of unbelieving husbands? Because there's a link in, in verse 2 that he makes to verse 4. He says that you're that your conduct is linked to your character. Verse 2, that they will be one without a word by the conduct of their wives when they see your respectful and your pure conduct. That's almost like your attitude and your actions. And those are what adorns the hidden person of the heart. And Peter is saying is you are not your face or your hair or your clothes, but you are beautified by what's happening where a mirror can't see, by what's happening deep inside your heart. The first contrast I just want to show between a, a window and a mirror that Peter gives us here is simply this. There's the difference that he wants us to know about our cosmetic beauty and God's creative beauty. There is a difference between our, our cosmetic, you know what I mean by cosmetic, I'm, I'm literally, like I gave my wife makeup for Christmas, right? Gave her perfume, gave her cosmetics. I walked into that terribly artificially lit store. I got a headache on the way in. I, I couldn't see and I couldn't smell. It was a brutal experience, and I got her things that are going to make her cosmetically look different. This is something that our culture um, apprises and loves. We, um, in Song of Solomon, the young woman who Solomon is attracted to actually says the words, don't look at me because I am dark. I've been tending the vineyard. She says, I've got a suntan. I know I'm gross. Whereas we in America spend how many billions of dollars tanning our bodies so that we look a little better, right? We have to understand that cosmetic beauty is sort of a moving target no matter who you are and what generation you live in. Um, if you've ever walked through any of the old uh, art galleries, um, like perhaps the Field Museum or, or the, the Museum of, 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 of uh, Art down in uh, Institute, Art Institute of Chicago, that's what it's called, and seen 1700s, 1600s paintings of women, they don't hold up to today's standard of beauty. Like, you don't see Kim Kardashian back in, like, a, a Rembrandt. They're, it's different. I shudder to think about what our great-great-great-grandkids are going to think about us. Because Rembrandt left us, you know, art museums. We are leaving our kids literally server farms full of selfies is what our generation's legacy is going to be. We stand in front of a mirror and we 
spend a lot of time in our world. I'll do this so that I stop blinding everybody. We do a lot of this. We, we, we look at ourselves and we look at how am I doing? We reflect back to the world and the culture that we live in, that which it reflects towards us. We're, we're always a mirror is trying to meet a standard or trying to represent what we want to look like in light of what actually is around us. Peter says um, to, to women of this day, he says, uh, you know, don't let your adorning, sorry about the light. Can we turn the light on? Scott, next service, when people are actually here for the right reasons, we'll... Uh, I'm just kidding. You're the ones that are here for the right reasons. Peter says, don't let your adorning be external. And the point is, you know, wives, don't try and blend into the culture around you for the sake of your husband. You you ought not be winsome to a spouse because of their ability to fit a cultural mold. Back in um, the areas of which... Peter was writing to these women, the cultural mold was gold jewelry, braided hair, and fancy dress. It maybe hasn't changed very much, I guess, in, in some categories, but um, his point is, is that there's only so much that the superficial can do for you, there, that, that there's a mirror, and the thing about a mirror is that it doesn't have or provide any light on its own. A mirror is something that if you put it in your house, it's going to reflect maybe the finish work around the trim that, you know, it's reflecting and picking up the details of what's in the space itself. But a mirror cannot transport you. It just reflects. He says, but rather, let let your adorning be the internal person of your heart. As if to say, go and show what a mirror can never do. A mirror only reflects the surface of something but a window. A window can transport you to another realm. I've um, walked into some of your homes and some of your past homes even and um, commented and I said, my goodness, these, look at all these windows. I stood a couple of weeks ago in someone's house right in the middle of the burst of autumn foliage and um, they had just bought this house in Valpo and oversaw a creek and it was very, very, very pretty and um, I literally felt like I knew God better because I was enveloped with all of the colors of the trees and just the lush creek that was happening. It just felt like I was there. A window has an ability to show you a different realm even though you might not be standing there. Peter's encouragement to wives is you have something on the inside of you that's going on that the gospel is doing that is beautiful. You don't need to settle for some sort of societal, cultural standard. Instead, let and show and pull back the curtains of the natural light of Christ, which God is doing deep inside of you, and let that be the thing that your family sees. You got to know this, that if you're a Christian, God is doing something in you. Do you know that? That God, God is so concerned about how he's shaping you and growing you and changing you. Some of us have incredibly complicated internal thought processes and mental thinking. Some of us have very difficult, you know, generationally challenged reactions to things, and we struggle in our responses sometimes. And yet when we come to Christ, he changes us from the inside out. He he actually goes to work on the way that we respond, the way that temptations hit us, the way that we think about things. If you are in Christ I kind of want you just to do this. I want you to maybe by yourself, quietly, just even say it, saying it out loud, God is working in me. 
God is doing something in me. God is changing me. I mean, if you're comfortable right now, I know that there's a few people here, but um, I'd love for you just to say out loud, I know God is changing me. If you can just say that with me, just quietly under your breath, God is, God, you're changing me. I know that you're changing me. I know that you're shaping me. I know that you're making me a different person. You, you got to believe that. You got to know that he is. And if that's true, which it is, in your homes, the best thing you can do is not try and just reflect the culture of your home, but actually show your family the change. Be a, be a window, not a mirror. Which brings me maybe to a second dynamic of mirrors and windows. I just say it, it's just the same thing differently. A mirror just lives on the surface, just shows you kind of what's here, but a, a window gets deeper. And as I think about what a window does is it bridges two realities, two realms, so to speak. I stood kind of in this bay window area that I have in my home, and we've got this really beautiful backyard, and I watched the snow just come dumping down last night. And here I was on the inside, safe in my warm home. Literally, I was standing over a heat vent, watching, watching the blizzard happen. And there was this spiritual thing that I was realizing in this moment is that I was bridging two realms. The Christian home, the Christian spirit, or the Christian person is, is really this combination of on earth as it is in heaven, isn't it? As God is working in your life, what is he doing? He's shaping you more and more into the image of Christ, that future version of yourself that only really materializes in heaven. And God is working that out in you. He, he is in you showing us what it is to be both on earth and in heaven. His spirit alive in you is showing us how to walk that straddle, that, that complicated dance that we do between heaven and earth, between, between what we still struggle against and to the freedom that we know we enjoy. No window is uniquely positioned to let you see both things at the same time. You stand in one place and you look out and you see something that inspires you and maybe you look around you and you go, yeah, but I'm still stuck in a dreary old gray, you know, because someone sold me on gray back five years ago at my house. This gray room. But out there is this beauty, this lushness. And, and friends, I, parents even, you raise kids. Don't just reflect surface priorities to your kids in your life. If God is doing something in you, let your spiritual life shine for those who are around you to actually see what heaven is like. In another passage um, of, of the scriptures, it says that the spirit in you is our first taste of heaven. It means it's our first experience of what heaven is gonna be like on a continual basis. So well, what does it mean for us to live the gospel light at home? It means to open up the windows and let the light of Christ shine through. And, and that's the last thing I wanna say about just windows and mirrors as it pertains to thinking about our homes and the light that God brings into it. Have you ever seen a, uh, a dressing room at like a theater or, you know, backstage? When we hired Daniel, he came from like really big churches that had huge production budgets and he was like, where's my lighting mirror with like all the lights? He didn't say this. I'm sorry. He didn't. I have to be clear when I'm joking about Daniel because he did not. He's not that shallow. That was Dustin. Yeah, that was Dustin. I'm not joking about that. So, so both of these require light sources. 
There's a reason that you see a hundred light bulbs around a mirror in the backstage of a green room is because a mirror often requires a tremendous amount of artificial light to show you what you want to see. How many of you had that experience this past you know, year where you've had to have a Zoom call in your house and you realized the lighting in your room was terrible and so what did you do? You moved over next to a, a window. You actually, you went to natural light. I have, I have a whole room in my house where I, I work and it's literally terrible feng shui but it's right next to the window so that everybody who's looking at me can actually see my face. Why? Because when we work with the natural light, things become brighter. There's a lot of artificial things that we can do in our families to try and make ourselves look better. You, you can dress your kids up. You can dress your husband up. You, you, can, you can try and have great romantic evenings in the city or, or great vacations or great homes or great lifestyles together. But it's always artificial. And you look out at people who don't do the same things that you do, but they have this deep abiding resilience in Christ. And you look at them and you say, man, there's something about them that's a little bit more genuine than what I have, and I want that. What is it? It's authentic light. Nothing compares. Even in photography, when, when you, you use a camera which has a million mirrors in it, the camera works best when it's used in natural light. I mean, this guy over here has got a million followers. Isn't that true? I, um, I want to just bring this here because you've all been so patient. Notice that the picture Peter didn't use was a hammer. I used a hammer to hang up a mirror on the back of the lobby today, but that was the only time we needed a hammer. Why? Because the picture isn't about you doing something or pounding something or, or, or pushing something. It's simply just you existing, being changed, and being willing to let people see inside of you. How do you bring light into your home? How much do you have to push on the gas pedal of the car, sort of to change the metaphor, so that other people can see God? Peter says, not much. Peter says, if you've got an unbelieving spouse or you've got kids that don't believe yet, the best thing you can do in your home is to simply open the windows and let God do the work, to invite people to come in when you are authentically changed with your quiet and pure conduct, not being rebellious, not trying to just match a cultural standard, but saying, look at what God is doing in me. I want that for you too. My prayer for our church is that we would be a window, not a mirror. There's a lot of churches that are mirrors that just reflect the wickedness of the world back to the world itself, as opposed to being transporters who the world maybe looks in one side of the window to us but they see at the same time heaven and earth and they realize that heaven's a little closer to earth than they thought and they come and they meet Jesus and more windows get put in the home and more light comes in and more inspirational and more harmonious it becomes. The thing I love about a window is that it requires the light to be shining on the outside for you to get the light on the inside. A window is not a light bulb. It just allows the light in. 
I'm constantly reminded of this because I'm a pastor and, and I've got three kids and my kids are now figuring out that I'm a pastor. And they, they often will ask me at night, you know, things about my job or about my faith. And I realize that my job is not to be the light bulb for them, just to be a window to show them the light. And the more I can just live my life in the light, the more of a chance they have to come and to worship Christ who is the light as well. This is what Jesus did for us, isn't it? I mean, on that cross, he was not a a mirror, but he was a window. On that cross, as he stood, or as he hung with arms open, he was not reflecting the guilt of the world back upon itself in shame. He was just simply saying, my arms are open, don't you see the Father? Can't you look through me and see heaven? As Thomas said, I'll never believe until I see with my own eyes, Jesus showed him and said, look right through So if Christ, who is our life and our light, is truly our Lord, it means all we have to do is let people see him. 